White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number everybody this is van i just wanted to do a quick instant reaction to seeing dune part two last night um john ringer will be on with me as soon as he is able he's come down with a cold of some sort and is not able to record with me right now so he encouraged me to go ahead and do an instant reaction kind of get my immediate thoughts out there and then hopefully in the next few days we'll get together and do a more comprehensive look at this uh, really remarkable movie. So I'm just going to go over a few things that kind of stood out to me about it. It, you know, I this is just off the top of my head. I'm not even using really any notes or anything. Just some of the things that kind of occurred to me watching it. I, you know, I I feel like we waited forever for it. It it was, um, you know, it was delayed a little bit and ended up being, I guess, three years. Right? It was the it was probably the first big movie after the pandemic that that my daughter and I went went out to the theater to see. The first one, and so with this one, I um, I was I guess I was hoping that I would that this one would be even better. We both really enjoyed the first one, and you can go back and catch our review of the first one on an earlier White Rocket episode, but um, that John and I did. But uh, I guess for this one, I was really hoping that it would carry forward everything they did really well in the first one, which which I thought was not just the look of it, the casting of it, but also the the script. I thought that. Villeneuve and the and the other screenwriter um, did a really remarkable job of um, taking a very layered, very complex story and you know whittling it down to the to the most essential core items. That's the first thing he did that was really good. And then the second thing he did was you know there's so much backstory that you need to really understand the Dune story, and I think that the um, I think that the, the, the Lynch movie from 1984 shows what happens when you try to keep everything. And honestly, he added some things too, right? I mean, he, Lynch tried to keep everything from the book and then add extra stuff like the sound weapons and the rain at the end and all that. And I think that the, the I don't think that, I know, there are, I know that there are people that appreciate, I, I appreciate things about the 1984 movie, but... I know there are people that love it, and I do not love it. I was always disappointed by it because I thought it should be on a par with Star Wars and not just a kind of a cult favorite, you know, like a like a guilty pleasure favorite or something. That's not what Dune should be is somebody's, you know, guilty pleasure uh, cult favorite. It should be like an epic. It should be up there with the biggest movies of all time, and that's how I was disappointed by the 1984 version. Um, but I think that the, the lingering lesson of that movie really was don't try to cram every single little thing into uh, a movie adaptation. And so what I thought Villeneuve and the other screenwriter or screenwriters did so smartly, so well with the first movie 
was to sort of, again, chop away the things you don't absolutely have to have and then take the things that you do need, the backstory, and find clever ways to drop it into conversation. Like, you don't need a 20-minute animated, and then there was this, you know. You don't need that, because, my God, that's going to drive people out of the theater, put them to sleep, a lot of people. Uh, just have it mentioned in conversation. So a lot of, the, you know, a lot of, like, the first hour of the first Dune movie was conversations where they brought up things, you know, that, that, that you as the audience member needed to know. And so fortunately for this new movie, part two, the first movie really did do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of laying down the foundations of what all is going on. So between the action ramping up in this one compared to the first one, and you didn't need to do nearly as much sort of info dump backstory in this one as you did in the first one, it really meant the first movie has to do a lot of the heavy lifting, and this one gets to just kind of zip right along. And I got to say, I was very I was very amused. I watched a video interview with, Den- with Denis Villeneuve, right, the director, um, this morning, and he said... They asked him, you know, like, name the five directors that were most influential to you making Dune Part 2. And, you know, you're going to see, you, you expect David Lean, obviously, because this is Lawrence of Arabia in space. I was not remotely surprised to have David Lean's name mentioned. But also, I thought it was really funny that his fifth director he mentioned, the other three of the others are, yeah, I'm not going to go into them. But the fifth one he mentioned was Chuck Jones. And you might say, wait a minute, Chuck Jones? Oh, Chuck Jones as in Looney Tunes? Yes. Because he was said in particular referencing uh, Roadrunner and Coyote, um, he was saying how he, to- he, he, he kept close to his heart and he told the editor that he wanted a Chuck Jones feel of this movie, like beep, beep, like the Roadrunner, like go, 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 fast pace, fast pace, fast pace. And I think if you compare this movie to the first movie, this movie is much faster paced. Um, you know, Some would argue it couldn't be much slower paced, and, and that's fair. That's fair. The first one was great, but it was pretty slow in places, right? Um, this movie is much more go, 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 go. Um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into a couple of spoilers in just a minute, so I'll give you a warning. But I'm not going there quite yet. But no, so I want to say I really enjoyed this one. I gave it four stars out of five when I immediately walked out of the theater. But I'm still thinking about that. And when we do the more uh, comprehensive review coming up in a few days, I'll have had some time to kind of sit on it a little bit, think about it, dwell on it, and I'll give my final uh, review ranking for it or whatever. But right now, four stars out of five, and and. I kept I withheld that fifth star just because of two things. One, and I'll get into the specifics of this in just a minute in the spoiler section, but there's two things that I thought kept it from being a five-star movie. One is it is all rather dour and serious, right? I mean, and that's just the nature of the story. That's not Villeneuve's fault. That's just Dune. Dune is not a happy-go-lucky thing. But I pointed out to someone, honestly, the Lord of the Rings books aren't, necessarily that happy-go-lucky either, and yet Peter Jackson's version gave you several moments of levity and, you know, where you could kind of relax and chuckle and laugh and catch your breath, and these Dune movies don't really have that. They, uh, you got it a little bit in the first one with uh, Duncan Idaho. Um, you know, Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho is about the closest thing to a, 
a kind of a happy character you can relax with and and just kind of take a break, you know, take a breath from all the seriousness. And that's one of the reasons I really appreciated Momoa's portrayal of Duncan Idaho in the first movie. I thought he did a a really good job of bringing some some spark and some life to what was otherwise a little little dry, honestly. No pun intended for Dune, right? Um, you know, so in this movie, um, you needed things to kind of move along faster, and they do. And, um, you know, the, the other thing, and I don't think this is really a spoiler, this is sort of the overall theme, you know, there are a lot of themes to the Dune books in, this, in that first book. And... You know, again, David Lynch's movie in 1984 really tried to hit on all of them to some degree, and I don't think did very well in a lot of them. But, um, you know, it, it got kind of the desert water conservation thing right, I thought, but didn't really get into the religious aspect much at all. It, I, it touched on it, but not, you know, Kyle McLaughlin was never asked to be, you know, the space messiah or anything quite the way that, that um, Timothy Chalamet is. And so I thought that in this new version, it was interesting that It was as if somebody required Villeneuve to pick one major theme and put 80 to 90% of his focus on it. So in this new movie, you don't get very much about the desert and water. You don't get a whole lot about the spice. Uh, you don't get a whole lot about the Kwisatz. I think they mentioned the Kwisatz Haderach one time in the entire movie. Uh, you don't get a lot about uh, you know seeing the future and all that. You get some. You get a little bit of. You get a light dusting of all of those things, right? But the thing that he hits you with a hammer all the way through the movie with is the the Mahdi, the Lizan Al Gaib, the voice of the outer world, the, the 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 space messiah thing, right? That's where he puts the vast proportion of his. Um, of his emphasis. And so that's the thing that really kind of carries the movie through to the end is this idea that, that Paul is this um, sort of, you know, Messiah come to lead the Fremen out of the desert and, and into to paradise or whatever. So um, I'm going to, and, 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 you know, we can discuss that more with John. I'm really curious what he's going to think about that when he gets to see it. But that's the thing that really struck me the most is that it just really kind of focuses so heavily on that one thing to the exclude, almost the exclusion of everything else. Um, and in the spoiler space here at the very end, I'm going to go ahead and say a couple of specific things about what is and what isn't there and how I felt about that. Um, and I don't want to do any specific names or characters until we get to that space. So let me go ahead and say, if you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want to hear any specific spoilers, go ahead and stop now, come back later, and we'll finish the conversation. And tune in when John and John Ringer and I do our, uh, our, our full review of it uh, in a few days. All right, so here's the spoiler section. Okay. So the part that's left out entirely that really surprised me was the Spacing Guild. I don't remember offhand 
if they are a part in, if they're really even mentioned we, in the first movie. In the first movie, we see the big ships moving around and carrying people like, you know, the big ship carries uh, the Atreides the from Caladan to Arrakis. And we, I think we see some ships carrying the Harkonnens from Giddy Prime to Arrakis and stuff like that. But you, they never go into the Spacing Guild, their dependence on the Spice. And, and, and because that's not a thing in the first movie, it didn't register with me that we weren't seeing it in the second movie until you get to the end. And here's the really critical part at the end, right? So... In the books and in the other, I think, adaptations, if I remember correctly, certainly in the sci-fi version, the, the Harrison sci-fi version, but sci-fi channel, um, but maybe in the in the Lynch version too, you know, when Paul wins the battle at the end and then defeats Fade in the knife fight, uh, you know, he goes up to the emperor and basically says, I'm going to marry your daughter and I'm going to be the emperor. And um, in, the, uh, in all the other versions, uh, it's... You know the great houses say no, and then the spacing guild chimes in and says, "Yes, we don't care who the emperor is. We just want our dang spice, right?" So it's basically that third leg of the triangle of the tripod, the spacing guild, that steps up and basically forces Paul as emperor on the other families. Because, again, they couldn't care less if the royal family is, is an Atreides or a Carino or a Harkonnen or whatever. They just want their spice. Well, the Spacing Guild doesn't even effectively exist in the Villeneuve movies. And so at the end, Paul says, I'm going to marry your daughter and be the emperor. And the emperor says no. And the great families say no. And so Paul launches the jihad, the great holy war in space and that's just they don't even ask the, the guild and the guild doesn't even answer basically if they even exist right so what i'm curious about is if there is a third movie you've got to have the guild for the third movie right because the spacing guild is a huge part of that conspiracy to to get rid of of paul so I'm wondering if Villeneuve just figured, if I don't even really need the Spacing Guild until the third alleged movie, just leave them out entirely. But if you leave them out entirely, then the one thing they do in the first book, right, which is put their foot down and say, make Paul the emperor so we don't lose the spice, how do you bring them in at the very end and explain their backstory and why anybody would care what they think? You know what I mean? It's like the movie would have come to a complete screeching halt while you introduced them and explained why they were important. And I mean, I guess you could have briefly mentioned them at the beginning or earlier to, to set it up, but I guess, I mean, it works the way he did it, right? It, that, it, because I mean, in the, in the books and in the, and in the other versions, the jihad gets launched anyway, right? The, that's the thing that's funny is that the, the uh, the spacing guild does acknowledge that that Paul is the um, is the emperor, and then they launch the, the the jihad anyway. So I guess you know it's just it's an interesting choice by Villeneuve, and I'm I'm interesting to I'm interested to hear what other people think about it and what John thinks about it. So we'll talk about that more. 
Um, the other thing that changed at the end, in part because of this, is that Villeneuve decided to make Chani have more agency, right? She's a more independent woman with more agency over herself than in the book and the other versions, right? It's like, it's like in the earlier versions, Paul says... Um, I'm going to marry Princess Irulan, and and it's a business decision, right? And I still love you, Chani, and we'll still have kids and stuff. And Chani's like, well, okay, you know. And I was waiting for that famous line at the end where where Paul's mother says to Chani, basically, it's okay, history will call us wives, right? Because she wasn't married to, to Leto. She was the consort or concubine. So, you know, whatever difference that makes. And so if Paul is officially married to Irulan for political purposes, right, in the book and the other versions, it makes it clear that he really loves Chani. They have children together, blah, blah, blah. Well, in this, when he says, I'm going to marry Chani, I mean, when, I'm, when he says, I'm going to marry Irulan, Chani's like, excuse me? And then she leaves and go out, goes out and, and catches a ride on a cab. And by cab, I mean a sandworm, right? And that's the end of the movie. So they like, you know, Villeneuve really kind of hits you over the head at the end with Chani is independent. She's a strong woman. And she's not just going to go, okay, you marry this other woman and I'll just, you know, hang around and have your kids, right? I- I'm not saying that, that, that what Chani does in the other versions is, is necessarily bad. But I can see where in 2024, we would rather that strong female lead character through both movies not just knuckle under at the end and go sure fine whatever you know she she has some agency she's like forget you i'm gonna go ride a sandworm you know that still leaves the possibility that paul can go to her and and say you know have a conversation and talk about it and ultimately she can come around to this arrangement if she wants to but um but it was interesting that that's the way they played it so her ending is very different as well and, and, and ties into the ending with the Emperor and everything. Um, so no spacing guild. Chani reacts in a different way than we expect uh, based on previous versions. And the emphasis is heavily placed on this whole religious aspect of Paul as the, as the space messiah or space Muhammad. One other thing, uh, my daughter who watched it with me, she asked something like, she was kind of curious about how like... Um, that the whole religious thing was actually made up, you know, by the Bene Gesserit. And so it wasn't even real. And Paul wasn't really, you know, that person that they thought they were looking for. And I said, well, even if it's not real, quote unquote, if he matches all their prophecies and, and all those descriptions and he has these powers, you know, in the end, what difference does it make? He has basically become the fictional character they were expecting. So was this Messiah they were looking for, was he fictional or was he real? I think by the end it doesn't matter because he's real. You know, he's, he's made it real. Um, last couple of things that were missing. There's no Count Fenring, and allegedly there were some scenes filmed with him, and they ended up not using him. And uh, though we do see the Lady Fenring, which is uh, Leia Sadu, who I just love. She's wonderful. That's I think of her as like Mrs. James Bond, you know, other than Tracy. She's the, you know, from the last James Bond, last two James Bond movies. And then there's no Thufur Hawat. That surprised me because 
And again, allegedly there were some scenes filmed, and just for the sake of timing and everything, they just cut him out, which is too bad. I mean, at least we we do get. I get the sense that we got um, Gurney Halleck back at the end, mainly because of the atomic weapons. Right? They Gurney was the one that knew how to get the atomic weapons back. He knew where they were hidden, and. Um, and so we needed him back for that. But I guess Thufur Hawat, we didn't need him back, and so it saved a couple of minutes of runtime just to kind of chop him out. But that's too bad. Because we did see those other three Atreides that had been captured by the Harkonnen and were using them as like gladi- gladiator, you know, cannon fodder, basically. Um, and then um, the last uh, thing that was missing was a- an actual... Alia, uh, she was there as a voice, and we and I I totally called this when when I saw the list of actresses that were in this movie, and I saw um, the actress that played her. I'm I'm blanking out on her name, but she was in the famous uh, chess chess movie a couple of years ago. Uh, Anya Taylor Joy, that's it. Then it would come to me. Uh, when we see her, I was like, oh, she's gonna be grown. Uh, she's gonna be grown up Alia, and somebody said to me how can you have a grown-up Alia when she's just like two years old at the end of this story? And I said, because he's going to have a vision. He's going to see her in a vision, just like he saw Chani in a vision. And sure enough, that's it. You see her one time in a vision as as like the grown-up Alia. Otherwise, she's just a little embryo in the womb chatting with her mother. Who's <laughs> basically? It's funny that in the second half of this movie, uh, Alia basically takes over, and Jessica is just like the translator. Ollie is doing all the talking, and 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 uh, Paul's mother Jessica just becomes like the the vessel, the medium, uh, you know, carrying on the conversation with with Paul and with Aaliyah as the middle the middleman, you know, the middlewoman. So that was another interesting thing, by the way, that affected the ending. all these changes affect the ending, right? And, and um, you know, not having Thufur Hawat there at the end. Uh, not having the spacing guild there at the end, having it be all about the religion there at the end, um, and then uh, having Chinese reactions different at the end, and then and then um, not having a two-year-old Aliyah at the end meant that Paul was the one who killed the Baron, and that really surprised me. Right, because it's famous how in the you know we got the Alicia Witt, the famous Alicia Witt scene in the 1984 version where she's that little tiny little girl dancing with the Gom Jabbar on her finger and the hat and everything with a little miniature Reverend Mother. So I guess that would have looked kind of weird. I have to admit it's 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 one of those things where you're trying to do this really serious ending to this giant story, and then you're gonna have like a two year old girl come out and have an overdubbed voice and stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I see why. I, I bet Villeneuve like thought about it for ten minutes and went, "No, nah, let's not do that," you know. And he and he looked at the 1984 version and went, "Yeah, let's not do that." So, I mean, I love it. I think it's awesome, right? It's great. It, it works great in a book where you don't have to visualize it, you know, literally. Um, but it looked a little silly in the '84 version, to be honest. And um, I can't remember in the Sci-Fi Channel version. I don't even remember it, so it wasn't memorable. But. Um, but anyway, yeah, so uh, it was an, yet another change at the end. I, th- I felt like all the big changes were at the very end, and they were pretty drastic changes. Even the knife fight, right? Even the knife fight went different because Fade didn't have his little 
uh, spike that pops out of his hip to poison Paul. You remember the whole, the whole thing with Fade is he's a really good knife fighter, but he also leans on having his opponents poisoned. That's why he was so mad at his uncle for not poisoning one of the Atreides soldiers so that the guy actually gave him a decent fight, you know, an excellent challenge. And, uh, and he was mad about it, you know. And so, um, you know, you end up with, uh, uh, with him having to have a straight-up fight with Paul, and he tries to poison him in the, in the book and in the other versions, and it doesn't work, and Paul kills him. And, and in this one, um, they... It, oh, you know what they did? I, I, I remember now. It's they bring it back around to the first movie. Remember in the first movie, there's that scene with... Um, with uh, Thufur Hawa, I mean, I'm sorry, with uh, with Gurney Halleck uh, training with Paul uh, with the shields, and Paul thinks he's about to kill, you know, a fake kill, you know, in a, in a fake fight. Paul thinks he's about to take out Gurney, and Gurney's like, look down, and there's a knife pointed at Paul's stomach. So Paul did the exact same thing to Fade with the knife, the second knife that. Uh, Gurney did to Paul when they were practicing. And I thought, if you're not going to use the ending from the book, at least you used one that was set up in the first movie. So that was pretty cool. All right, there's a million other things to say about this movie, and I'm sure that John and I will get into them when we do our longer reaction. I just wanted to do our review, but I want to do a quick reaction. All right, so we're going to leave it there, and we will see you guys soon for our full reaction on to Dune Part 2, Dennis Venu's really remarkable epic movie. Uh, we'll see you guys down the road. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.